welcome back to Silhouettes, a fashion history podcast all about the importance of the clothes we wear. I'm your host, Belle, and in today's episode, we welcome the lovely Elizabeth L. Block. And I have Elizabeth on the podcast today, essentially, to usher in the new series of The Gilded Age on HBO, and to talk to her all about her book, Dressing Up the Women Who Influence French Fashion as it is the perfect accompaniment. Now, Elizabeth L. Block is an art historian and the senior editor in the publications and editorial department at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Dr. Block earned her PhD in art history at the Graduate Center City University of New York and has a focus on 19th century US paintings. She also holds an MA in American Studies from Columbia University and a BA in English and Art History from the George Washington University. Her wonderful book, Dressing Up, The Women Who Influence French Fashion, was published by MIT Press and it is the winner of the Victorian Society in America Book Award 2022 and was shortlisted for the Association of Dress Historians 2022 Book of the Year. She also has many articles that appear in American art, 19th century art worldwide, West 86th, Town and Country and Slate. She's also provided interviews to BBC News and BBC Women's Hour and multiple podcasts including this one now. Essentially, she is the perfect individual to have on a podcast like this and we had a wonderful conversation all about the Gilded Age in America, the House of Worth, 19th century American fashion and, of course, we chatted all about her book and the influences that happened between France and America in the Gilded Age as a whole. So if that is a time period you're interested in or a time period that you think you really know little about and you want to know more about, this is the perfect episode for you and we will also as I said be discussing all of the different topics that Elizabeth focuses on her book dressing up and what her book can really teach us about fashion in 19th century America and the conversations that were happening between design houses and how this influenced fashion in the 19th century as a whole. So if that's something you're interested in keep listening and welcome Elizabeth L. Block. Welcome, Liz, to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. And you're here to talk all about your book, Dressing Up. So I think we'll just start with you talking about what inspired you to write a book about American women in the late 19th century. And what was it that got you to that point of wanting to write a book? Thank you so much for having me. This is such a joy. And I love this opening question. Um, So (laughs) I'm an art historian and And my area of focus has been on portraits of women in the late 19th century in the United States and France. Mm -hmm. And I spend a significant amount of time looking at portraits by Mary Cassatt and John Singer Sargent, for example. And I'm always struck by how much of the canvas is taken up by clothing. But At the same time, how little focus has traditionally been paid to the depiction of the garments and also to considering the lives of those garments. That is, we need to ask more questions about how a woman's sitter in a painting came to be depicted wearing a specific outfit. And I like to ask myself, what was the thought process, um, both by the sitter and the painter in the course of deciding which outfit they would wear for the portraits. So what style dress, what colorways, you know, what would make the final cut in the decision-making process? And 
you know, which outfit would would last for posterity. Mm. There is such an intersection between art and fashion, but I think sometimes people sort of forget that that is what makes some of these pieces so recognizable, you know, in terms of artwork. And it's also the thing that allows us to be able to tell which time period it's from, <laughs> you know, exactly. that is one of the main things that we can trace times through people's clothes because architecture and things like that change in less dramatic ways, I think. That's right. This episode is very timely because it's going to be coming out around the time of the HBO show, The Gilded Age. And your book is obviously all about the Gilded Age in America, if I'm not wrong. That's right. The Gilded Age is having another moment right now. It is definitely, I think, because of the show, most likely. Can you define (laughs) what is meant by the term Gilded Age in American history? Because I think in England, we obviously have the Tudors, the Victorians, but they're very much centered around our royal family. So I think there might be some people who aren't aware of the term the Gilded Age and also just why you chose to focus on it for your book. The phrase the Gilded Age comes from the famous American writer Mark Twain. And he wrote a novel called The Gilded Age in 1873, in which he lampooned the greed of wealthy people of the period in the United Mm. States. We're talking about the period after the American Civil War, which ended in 1865, and the period goes to about 1900. And the term the Gilded Age evokes a veneer of guilt that was put off by the wealthiest families. And guilt, um, G-I-L-T, as far as um, like guilt <laughs> yeah, sure. um, instead of the guilt like that we all um, But the implication, <laughs> the implication is that these wealthy period, these wealthy families were putting on an air of sophistication. So if we use a metaphor jewelry, a bracelet, for instance, it would refer to a thin layer of guilt over a base metal, but not mm. solid gold. That's so now, interesting. Now, I must say, <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's, a, it's a, I think, an apt metaphor. Mm. I have to say, however, that the term the Gilded Age is complicated and it's very fraught for historians, including myself. So I am careful when I use it, which I try to do sparingly. And Mm. you will probably hear me refer to it as the so-called Gilded Age or simply Mm. the late 19th century. So let me explain. Historians do not like the term because it does not accurately provide a sense of the extremes in American society at the time. It was an age of vast discrepancies in wealth, There were huge disparities between the haves and the have-nots. The so-called titans of industry were making their fortunes in steel, shipping, real estate, railroads, mining. And these families are names that we still hear today. Vanderbilt, Carnegie, McKay, Astor, to name a few. Now, once they gained entry into high society in the major cities like New York, they moved uptown to get away from the poor and working class people, many of them immigrants who lived in dire straits in the downtown areas. Okay, but all that said, 
said, <laughs> if Julian Fellows, who created the Gilded Age television show on HBO Max, that's coming back for its second season and that we're mm-hmm. all gearing up for. Um, now, if he, he uses the term, I think we're okay to use it. Um, the real value here is that Julian Fellows has done a brilliant job of drawing attention to this period. And I think um, all historians, art historians, social historians, we are all grateful for that. It reminds me a little bit about calling the 20s the roaring 20s, because it gives it Uh this this point of view that I think makes people assume it was wonderful and, you know, parties and glittering clothes and the great Gatsby comes to mind, you know, but actually it was a really multifaceted time period. Of course. You know, political, social turmoil and for everyone it wasn't roaring. So do you think it's a similar kind of situation to that? I do. All time periods are complicated and Mm. there's never one myopic view of them for sure. Mm, But these terms definitely like crop up sometimes and you're just like, why is it, you know, that's, why has that become that? That's just what people want to know now about that time period as opposed to, you know, maybe some of the the darker truths of it. Understandably. Yeah. (laughs) So if any of my listeners are maybe new to this era, can you tell us what classifies fashion of this time period? So, you know, the most popular silhouettes, the styles, the accessories, the way people were styling themselves, things like that. Sure. Well, fashion changes a great deal throughout the decades, actually every season. Um, Mm of the decades that we're talking about, the 1870s, 80s, and 90s. In the 1880s alone, there were the bustle wars. So for a few years, a bustle enhancing the backs, a woman's backside was the height of fashion. Then for a few years, the bustle was out. Then the bustle comes back in. There are arguments. These The magazines, periodicals, especially men, love to talk about the bustle wars. Um, mm-hmm. But all this to say that it's difficult to distill one style that defines the period. But we can refer to a generalized S-shape silhouette with the bust out front supported by a corset that creates a narrow waist and accentuates the back. Mm-hmm. side, <laughs> the backside, a woman's backside. Sure. <laughs> um, skirt lengths extend past the ankles and sleeves cover the arms during the day. But in the evening or at a fancy ball, a sleeveless bodice would be acceptable. Mm. For the high-end market, fine silks, laces, beading, and ribbons comprise the dresses and they might be accentuated by metal threads and sequins. And for jewelry, Jewelry was on full display, and we're talking more than just necklaces and bracelets. Caroline Astor, who was the head of New York Society, she would pair her dresses with a coronet of diamonds on her head and her famous diamond-encrusted stomacher around her middle. The newspaper reports and the magazine reports always talk about her, her suite of diamond jewelry and accessories. So I suppose that it was quite a glittering time period that you've spoken a lot about accessories and jewellery and stuff. I I feel like when I conjure up an image of this time period in my head, just at the most basic level, that is one of the things that I think about is sort of bright colours and and jewellery and things like that. Oh, yes. And don't forget that the electric lighting, which was new, would catch the glimmer of all of these gems and metal threads. And that would really add to the glamour of these Mm. gowns and outfits and ensembles. 
Yeah, that's so interesting, actually. I, yeah, it's something we do forget about, you know, what the, the difference between candlelight and electrical lighting, how that would have changed fashion trends, I'm, sh- I'm sure. Yes. It also, when you were describing the silhouette, it makes me think of the Gibson girl. It's obviously a similar time period and a similar design. Yeah, the Gibson girl comes around at the very end of the period mm. that we're talking about. So that S shape does get more exaggerated right after the turn of the century. Mm. I guess it's just snowballing from what started and then it got more and more exaggerated as time went on. Exactly. And that that waist gets very narrow. Yeah. We saw that all around the world, but particularly in England as well, I think it's similar, similar silhouette. So with that in mind, like what key events and developments during the Gilded Age do you think had a real impact on shaping the fashion trends that happened? Because we see this a lot throughout time, the political social backdrop of a space sort of affecting the clothes or the styles that were coming out. Yes. The amount of wealth by European royalty and American heads of society was so enormous and it flowed right into the materials of couture. A house of worth gown would be constructed of the finest silk from Lyon and adorned with sequins, crystals, gemstones. So if a woman's husband mined silver in the state of Nevada in the United States, like that of Marie Louise McKay, what was stopping her from demanding silver and gold thread laced throughout a couture evening gown? Well, nothing really. She could have the best of the best. That's so interesting. So it was just the the, the extreme wealth, just obviously people needed somewhere to put that money in clothes was one of those places, right? <laughs> right into the couture. Yeah. So wh- why were people in this time period, why did they become so wealthy? Because obviously you said it was after the Civil War. I can't imagine many people weren't suffering monetarily after that time period. But what was it that happened? Right. Well, this is, yeah, this this is the great industrial age in the United States. And so some of those families that I was talking about earlier, like Vanderbilt, Carnegie, McKay, they are making vast fortunes in these industries like the, the steel industry, textiles, even at this point, um, railroads for sure. And, mm. and then those silver mines and just the amount of wealth that was made in these industries, I think is something that we can barely grasp today. Mm. It was so, so enormous. I guess there was also so much that was new. There was things being done for the first time. And if that was, if you got into that world at the right time, you would have just flourished (laughs) in that, I suppose. Yeah. It was technology getting Mm. getting in early. And some of these industries was the key to making a fortune. Obviously, your book um, focuses on this time period and the effects of fashion sort of between France and America. But in the research of the book, did you uncover any interesting stories or individuals from the time period that you found really interesting or important, particularly when it comes to the development of clothes? Oh, yes. (laughs) Well, let's talk about the Maison Félix, if you'll allow me. Of course. Go for it. Um, (laughs) The Maison Félix should be better known than it is. Than it is, And during my research, I became fascinated by this house of couture. It was located in Paris in the high-end area. Of the, it was at number 15 Faubourg Saint-Honoré. It was near the House of Worth itself. And it was in business from 1846 to 1901, which is an 
just a very long stretch of time for one house to be in business. It's very mm-hmm. impressive. And the house was a direct competitor to Doucet, Pacan, and Worth, amongst others. And I came across, I just kept digging and digging for information about the founders and this family that I couldn't quite sort out. Um, the owner, it turns out, was Emile Martin Poussineau, who was called Felix. And he was called Felix after the original owner from whom the Poussineau family bought the business. Now, the Felix firm was a household name in the United States, and it was spoken in the same breath as all those other major houses that I mentioned, Doucet, Pacan, Worth, Pingat, and, and more. The patrons of the house included royalty, Empress Eugenie, Queen Margarita of Italy, and also actresses, including Sarah Bernhardt, Sophie Croizette, and Lily Langtree. But it has fallen out of the historical record because we don't have business documentation or ledgers for it. Mm -hmm. The garments have survived in lesser quantities than some of the other houses, but the designs are gorgeous. And to give one that comes to mind, there's an extraordinary opera gown in the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising Museum in Los Angeles, California. And it's made of cream-colored silk. It comes with matching opera gloves that you wear up to the elbows. There's a bustle protruding from the lower back, the style at this moment in the 1880s (laughs) for this particular dress. And um, the museum in Los Angeles also has a matching opera gown that was worn by the owner's daughter. And the daughter was in her teens or early 20s. And I just love envisioning this mother and daughter going to the opera in these exquisite um, <laughs> gowns by the Maison Felix. And I, I just wish we had, you know, a photograph of them. But we oh, do have yeah. the garments and and that's, you know, just such a treasure to have them. I also have tracked down Felix garments at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, at the Western Reserve Historical Society in Cleveland, and in several museums in France. And I'm still finding more. This will be a years-long research topic Mm -hmm. for me. And just last week, I came across, I was looking at magazines from the period from the late 19th century, and I came across a new fashion plate that I hadn't seen before that was by Felix. So there's still so much out there to discover. And as a researcher, that's where the excitement comes in for me. I love talking about historical research because so many people talk about how you're just like solving a mystery. (laughs) (laughs) You become Nancy Drew. (laughs) Yes, it's like a big puzzle often, you know, when you're working on a fashion house one at a time and particularly something that's not well documented you really have to search for these things and the satisfaction of when you find something that you've been looking for is just so good (laughs) it's the best when you stand up and you just sort of start cheering to yourself (laughs) in the middle of a library yeah oh it's great talking about like historical research obviously we're just talking about finding things which is the more positive side were there any challenging aspects of writing this book that you came across in your research and you know how did you kind of try and overcome that i needed to contend with the fact that the surviving garments and the documents so heavily favored one particular house in france and that was the house of worth so as i mentioned i've mentioned the house of worth already a couple of times but to provide a little context a little more context for it. The House of Worth was 
uh, located at 7 Rue de la Paix in um, Paris. It was led by Charles Frederick Worth, who was a British man, but he worked in France and became, you know, the big name. This was the House of Worth that most people know. If they know one name of haute couture from this period, they probably know the House of Worth. So he ran it from about 1875 and uh, 1870 until his death in 1895. And then his sons took over. So that's Jean-Philippe Worth and Gaston Worth. And the house was magnificently successful. And so that firm is very well known with good reason. You know, the exquisite designs, the exquisite the the enormous reach that it had with wealthy clients all mm-hmm. over Europe and in the US but the conception of the scope of french brands in the united states has been distorted by the scarcity of archives for other houses mm-hmm. so the house of worth is really that household name now once i made peace with the fact that worth was undeniably the leader of the field and that i was not going to dislodge that positioning then it opened up a much freer approach to looking at the value of other prominent houses like the Maison Bellique. So my research and my conceptualization for the book became much more open and much easier, to be honest, once I made peace with the House of Worth leading the field. So it was kind of like you knew something was there and you had to try and just find it wherever you could. (laughs) You got it. Obviously, you're talking here about someone, you know, a a house of worth being more popular than other design houses. But are there any other common misconceptions or myths or ideas about this time period in America and any designers that you came across and that you talk about in the book? In addition to the crucial explanation that we talked about earlier, that the late 19th century in the United States was riddled with Mm. massive discrepancies in wealth, I also want to clarify that the women I discuss in Dressing Up who were contributing to the market for French fashion came from a number of U.S. cities. There is often a tendency to centralize discussions around New York City, but the women I look at were living in other major urban centers like Chicago, Washington, D.C., Charleston, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Cincinnati, and Cleveland. So although we often talk about the Gilded Age in New York, there are women across the country in all these cities, the ones I named, plus so many more, who would pick up on the fashions that were coming in from France and those styles disseminated through magazines and newspaper articles. And they were buying from France as well. And I just don't want to lose sight of women in other parts of the United States. Yeah, I think you do see sort of the major cities come up a lot in conversations. I mean, for good reason, because they were most likely keeping better records, (laughs) the more money was in those spaces. But yeah, you don't want to lose sight of so many thousands of other people and women particularly who were also experiencing this time period just in maybe a slightly different way, right? That's right. We did speak about this a little bit, (laughs) 
I sort of want to talk a bit more about the technological advancements and the idea of innovation during this time period. And obviously you speak about um, the influence of France and designers like House of Worth and Maison Felix. But how did this all come to influence the developments in fashion in America and also in France? Right. So we mentioned earlier that the industrialist families were making their fortunes in steel, shipping, real estate, railroads, mining. The Vanderbilts, for example, made their Mm. money in railroads and shipping. I mentioned earlier the McKay family from silver mining in the state of Nevada. All of these innovations impacted the fashion industry and the American women who invested their time and money into it. So Mm -hmm. with transportation, for instance, cross-country railroad tracks and high-speed trains allowed women to travel to the main cities and see the fashions that came in from France. So they might come from upstate New York to Manhattan, for instance, and visit department stores like Lord & Taylor or Macy's that would have even more options than their local department stores. The advancements in industry at this moment impacted all aspects of people's lives in this market. So this also, these advancements also impacted the postal service. I mean, I don't think many of us think about mail service too often or snail mail too often, Mm -hmm. but they, the postal service expanded and the postal service delivered the fashion magazines to middle-class and upper-class customers throughout the country. And they were able to do it more easily and faster because of the railroad. Also, there were faster and more comfortable steamships, and those allowed wealthy women in the United States to travel transnationally with more ease. And so people were really moving more, and they were moving more easily, and objects were moving more easily if we think about mobility in general. So the magazines are getting into people's hands and the and the couture is getting into people's hands. So it all just interconnects, right? So much more than I think we realize. It's yeah, exactly. it's really interesting, isn't it? And I think people definitely yeah. think of France and America as two such separate entities, especially in the past. But you're like, no, the world was just as connected as we are today, it's just really in a well different way, connected. right? Yeah, yeah. If you were in that upper one percent, you might be going to Paris twice a year to look for yeah. for the new fashions and get fitted for new dresses. We're not the only people that travel. <laughs> people right. always have for such a long time. <laughs> Talking more about your book, what kind of primary sources and sort of archival sources did you use during your research? And you spoke a little bit about, you know, finding the mysteries and finding things you didn't expect. Did this contribute to the depth of the book and the things that you were able to talk about? Yes, I had the unbelievable privilege of viewing some garments in the storage study room of the Costume Institute at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. And living in New York, I tried to go to as many fashion exhibitions as possible at museums like the Fashion Institute of Technology Museum here Mm -hmm. in Midtown. And there are more fashion exhibitions these days, but they're still somewhat infrequent due to how labor intensive it is to care for garments from Mm. years past and to mount them on mannequins without damaging them and to control the lighting and to make sure that delicate dresses and garments are not exposed to too much lighting. So that's 
the research that I do with the garments, I try to see as many as I can when they're on view. But then as we were talking about earlier, there's also the joy of reading French and American period magazines. And for me, I like to go to Watson Library at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and call up a few years of one or two magazines and really sit and flip through the pages. So for a French periodical, the Journal des Demoiselles is a wonderful one. And for on the American end, Peterson's Magazine and also Godey's Ladies Book. And mm. for me, there's nothing like turning the pages of the originals and, and taking in the color fashion plates and the illustrated advertisements. There are so many advertisements for undergarments. It's crazy really? in the back of the magazines, but they're so, so fun to look at. And I'm especially seeing many um, in the late 1880s for corsets and for dress shields and for how to clean your dresses. So those periodicals, like I said before, it's such a pleasure to turn the pages of them. Old magazines are just like a wealth of information, particularly for fashion history, because that's where you find the the primary sources of that kind of thing. It's not going to be in, yeah. in books and, and other really, places. It's... And they really show you what topics were on the minds of women consumers and also mm. of dressmakers. There are so many articles and patterns for garments that are aimed directly at dressmakers. Yeah, so true. And, you know, I think magazines obviously aren't quite as popular as they are today but even up until the 90s it's going to be a historical mm -hmm. source using women's magazines that's right so what's one thing to just sort of round all this off that you really hope readers will take away from your book i want to emphasize that the women of these big name families like morgan astor vanderbilt skirmer horn yes these were wealthy women spending family money but they were doing it with intention and discernment. Their decision-making and their spending was powerful to society and it affected the vast fashion market. So it's like not seeing them in a bubble of just, you know, rich women who were frivolous and spending all their family money on clothes and silly things like that. They were actually, their spending was affecting the sort of economic backdrop of the whole of the country, right? Precisely. Mm, that's so interesting. That is something I think people forget about wealthy individuals, particularly in the past, how much that affected the way that society ran in a way that I think maybe we don't quite see today. How did fashion in the Gilded Age or just the late 19th century change and eventually influence the fashion of future American history? You know, how did this move into the turn of the century, into the 20s and even into today? Well, there's so many examples that I could choose from, but I, um, I'm going to talk about two. So... <laughs> When I, one of my favorite periods is the 1890s. So I can't keep my eyes off of fashion plates and dresses mm -hmm. from the 1890s. And when I look at the exaggerated puppy or leg o' mutton sleeves of the 1890s, I see a direct line to some of the costumes worn by movie stars in the 1930s. So mm -hmm. the Hollywood star Joan Crawford, for example, these gorgeous, flowing, gowns that were movie costumes. So they're always going to be a little exaggerated, but the sleeves really, I mean, I just, like I said, it's just a direct through line to mm -hmm. these magnificent power sleeves of the 1890s. And then 
A second example that comes to mind is the continued fascination today with the corset. So the corset Mm. had the power, I mean, this is a form of underclothes, underwear, but the corset had the power to support a woman's body in the 19th century. It has such a long, rich history that we won't go into, but (laughs) the general concept of supporting a woman's body and accentuating certain areas and and improving and supporting posture. I think we see that today in the enormous success of the shapewear industry. And of course, Kim Kardashian's Skims line is the most obvious example, but the shapewear is related to, to the corset and underforms, other forms of underclothes from the 19th century. It's a direct line. Yeah, I suppose you could sort of argue that's really where it started as well with the introduction of the corset. Obviously, like you said, the corset goes back to the beginning, basically, because it's <laughs> very old. I did a whole episode on the history of the corset, actually. I could only fit I so much in. There was so much of it. I know. It's interesting. It's this idea of accentuating what's already there. And you see that sort of, yeah, throughout all different time periods, different silhouettes and styles, but it's this idea of taking a woman's body and sort of accentuating certain parts of it and yeah that's totally what we see today you know it's cinching in in the waist or flattening the stomach and things like that it's very very reminiscent I hadn't really made that connection I don't know why but you're so right (laughs) there's so much marriage between the two and supportive I mean shapewear is really supportive of a woman's Mm -hmm. body it's not just for you know moving you know parts around I think often that's exaggerated but to have a garment, an undergarment that really supports your posture and makes you, you know, feel like you throughout the day and, you know, not have to take stretch breaks and that kind mm. of thing. I think it's really, you know, valuable and and worthwhile. And, and as you say, has a long history. It's so interesting. It's definitely a piece of two halves, isn't it? The shapewear corset thing. It's like, it does two has two benefits and that's also just so interesting in itself (laughs) and I think that's what women have wanted throughout time they want support but they also want to feel like they look nice on the outside (laughs) so last question finally can you share any details about your next project or area of research that readers can look forward to well this will be a tease for my next book titled (laughs) beyond vanity the history and power of hairdressing which will be coming out by MIT Press in 2024. And it builds on my interest in how hairdressers were central to the fashion system and that they were not just a marginal service to the couture aspect of the industry. And so I look at the partnerships and the rivalries between couturiers and hairdressers and find that the two professions were mutually dependent and to an extent they were inbred. Several couturiers, designers, began business as milliners working on hats and then they expanded from hats to gowns after their business names had been established. So of course, milliners are related to hairdressers and both hairdressers and milliners had to work with the designers of gowns. So it's all interrelated. My fave main Maison Felix, which we talked about earlier, (laughs) that fashion house started with hairdressing and um, they did hair for Empress Eugenie. 
So my book, Beyond Vanity, however, will shift the focus squarely to the United States. Now, the hair is just such a huge topic that it was unwieldy to do more than one country. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but so I'm I'm going to focus on the United States. And um, the goal of the book is to reestablish the cultural power of hair in the 19th century mm. by looking at the places, spaces, and time that were devoted to hairdressing in the country. And of course, it will be lavishly illustrated, just <laughs> like dressing up. That sounds so interesting. <laughs> I think uh, I need Thank to talk you. a bit more about I can't hair. Wait for and it to come out. Yeah, no, it's yeah. such an interesting topic. I think it gets lost a little bit in conversations around fashion because it's not clothing, it's not an accessory, but it is an accessory in its own right, you know, particularly That's right. when it comes to like defining time periods as well. Think about, I don't know, the, the 1920s hairstyles or 80s hairstyles. They're so, they're so of their time period. So yeah. Oh, it's, it's like, it's the, I just keep saying it's the, the, this topic is the gift that keeps on giving. I mean, mm hairdressing is so fascinating and hairstyles and haircuts. And I mean, and I'm just focusing on women. I get a little bit into men's barbering, but that's an enormous topic in and of itself. And I think we're in for a real rise in interest in the hair industry. Mm, yeah, true. I suppose you have barber shops and then you have hairdressers and they're very gendered for the most part. For the most part, they're gendered, although I have some surprises that I found, which Ooh. readers will be interested when the book comes out, I think. We love a historical surprise. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much Elizabeth for coming on the podcast what a wonderful conversation that was I feel very educated and I definitely know a lot more about Gilded Age fashion the 19th century and I think I have a new budding interest in opera gowns especially if you go on my Instagram at silhouettes podcast you'll be able to see an image of the opera dress the champagne opera dress that Elizabeth mentions it's absolutely gorgeous incredible all of the above I'm definitely gonna have to seek some more of these out Elizabeth can also be found online this post will be shared on her socials as well as mine so do look out for those as i just said head over to at silhouettes podcast which is my instagram and you'll find all of her information there i'll also leave it in the description of this episode Dr. Block also has a new book coming out named Beyond Vanity, The History and Power of Hairdressing, which will also be published by MIT Press in full autumn 2024. So if you liked everything that she said about her current book that's out, Dressing Up, do access that one. You can buy it um, pretty much everywhere, but particularly on Amazon. It's really a wonderful read. And I hope this episode has sparked an interest for you in that book specifically, but also that time period in fashion. And do pre-order, save... TBR her next book Beyond Vanity because I don't know about you but the history of hairdressing and hairstyling and just the culture of getting your hair done is really fascinating to me and actually something I really need to know more about. I know more about fashion trends when it comes to hair but not necessarily the process of making these hairstyles cutting these hairstyles and the culture of the hairdresser so yeah look out for that it sounds really fascinating it's definitely one I think I'll be picking up when I get the chance as I said it will be in full autumn 2024 published by MIT Press with all that being said I hope you enjoyed this episode do head over to both our socials to find out more and I have some visual images of all the things we spoke about we'll be having a new series coming out in the new year probably 
I think I'm going to take a little December break because I've been very, very busy. <laughs> and I'm also excitedly going to be starting writing for the Historian's Magazine. So for fear of spreading myself too thinly, I'm going to, yeah, as I said, take a little Christmas break and I'll be back in January for a new short histories series, which will be exceptionally niche. <laughs> Just what you want from a short history series. So keep your eye out for those. And in the meantime, you can just also listen to all my other episodes. I had a whole spooky season series, which was really fun, but a lot of work. And if you haven't listened to those, I highly recommend. And of course, even older ones that you might not have picked up yet. I hope you enjoyed. Please leave a review if you get an opportunity. It helps this podcast to be bumped up into home pages. And I really, really love reading all of your reviews. And I'll see you in the next one. Stay fab, everyone.